tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. Welcome to Episode 3 of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe Podcast. My name is Michael Bradley, and with me is my co-host, Sean Engel. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back. This episode, we are continuing our look at the first wave of Tangent books from 1997, with a book that is a little different than the past two, and then it gives us a trio of stories looking at smaller and, and really very different corners of the Tangent Universe, um, filling in some details and, and fleshing out minor aspects or, or details that have been referenced in previous stories or that, that will be referenced in other books. Yeah, this this one has a, a very different feel. It's still got that sort of dark feel that we've had in the first couple of books, but it's a, a more of a throwback to the sort of horror books that DC was publishing in the uh, Silver Age, mm-hmm. the sort of House of Mystery and House of Secrets type stuff. In fact, there's references to that. Uh, it's got a nice anthology feel, and it's one of the things that I really like about the book. Yes. It's, it's the kind of book that, you know, if you can see this style of book fitting well in a universe that is continually published, like the, like the DC universe, that would um, let you look at characters that aren't necessarily going to carry their own ongoing title, but you know, still good to have a story from them once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get into the book itself, we have got some feedback to go through. Yeah, surprisingly, just you know, three episodes in, we've already had someone uh, write into the show, yep. and the person who wrote into the show is a fellow podcaster. His name's Gene Hendricks, and he does a couple of shows over the Two True Freaks site. Uh, one is the Hammer Strikes podcast, where he basically talks about you know, whatever he wants to talk about. Uh, a lot of stuff, you know. He'll, uh, he did one recently on mythology, which was really cool, Norse mythology. He also does the Quantum Cast with his friend Jeff Fishman, I believe, and. Uh, that one is about the uh, superhero Quasar, a, a character who uh, has some sort of jewelry that allows him to do uh, mystical things. Sounds kind of like Green Lantern, but yeah, it's a cool show regardless. And he also does Legends of the Superheroes, which is uh, his show where he's covering basically TV or movie iterations of various superheroes. So far, I know he's covered one on the Swamp Thing movies, which he did with uh, Rob Kelly over at the Aquaman Shrine. And that was a really fun show. So uh, it's it's great to get an email from Gene. Yes. And just for some context, um, 
we're recording this about four days after the first episode came out. So, mm-hmm. so Gene got got the email in yes. right after it, and I was I was really impressed. He actually messaged us on Facebook at the uh, Facebook page for Parallel Lines and said, you know, he's really excited that he's going to get in on the show on the ground floor. So I hope you're enjoying the show, Gene, and thanks for writing in. Uh, His email starts out. It says, Sean and Michael, I just finished your first episode and wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed it. I, like Sean, saw the ads for Tangent back in the day, but never sought them out. Your show is going to be a journey of discovery for me and, from this episode, it sounds like it'll be an informative and entertaining trip. I'm really looking forward to the next one. Well done. And it's signed by Gene. Well, thanks, Gene. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you enjoy the comics. If you can go find these comics, like I said, I was able to find the lot on eBay for a pretty good price. And so far, I have not been anything but impressed with the comics, you know, from what I've read. So I think this is going to be definitely something that I'm looking forward to. And I hope eventually you guys will be looking forward to as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to be in the same shoes as gene and and you and that they saw the ads but never really checked them out so Mm -hmm. well and i hope that in some way that we can get people interested in this and get them to come pick this up and then you know just add more to their collection and uh you know upset their significant others or spouses for piling up more comics in the rooms comics it's one of those things whatever (laughs) uh but gene also left an itunes review and it was five stars with the headline, Great Stuff. And he wrote, I've never read any of the Tangent line, but this show is a great introduction to it. Michael and Sean make it so that you don't need the issue in front of you or even have to read it. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Cool. That's, you know, I really appreciate Gene writing in and uh, doing iTunes because iTunes reviews are a bit more difficult because you got to log into iTunes, you got to find the show, and you've got to submit the review, and right. then it, it iTunes determines whether the review can be posted or not. It's all a big rigmarole rather than emailing in. So him going through iTunes to do that is awesome. We really appreciate that. Yeah. If you, if you guys would like to write iTunes reviews or write into the show, what's the email address in for that again? That would be tangent at greatcrypton.com. Go ahead and write in there or look for Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Look for that on iTunes and you can leave a review there. Yep. And before we take a break and then come back with a story, I want to give a bit of a mea culpa about last episode because when I was editing the show together, I noticed something or I realized something that I didn't mention in my synopsis and then we never brought it up in the discussion either. But that was the origin of the name, The Metal Men. Oh, yeah. And in the issue, it's and, and the reason I bring it up is because I think it might um, come into play later when we get more into um, how... Uh, Marcus Moore survived being shot at the end of that issue, but um, at the beginning of the or towards the beginning of the comic, it talks. Of, uh, it's being narrated by the president, of course. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Schwartz. Uh, president Schwartz. Schwartz right? Yes. And he talks about how they were originally called the Metal Men because of Mark, meaning Marcus Moore, who was kind of the uh, the the big brother and leader of the group. And apparently he took a serious head wound in Vietnam and had to have part of his skull replaced with metal plate. And then because the the team became almost invulnerable, they all became known as the metal men, you know, from that metal plate. And as we've seen uh, Marcus Moore in the present day, you know, half of his face is 
the big metal plate yeah, or skull. Yeah, he's got so. sort of the the ter- the sort of half face Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator type look. Right. So so I, I wonder if that's not going to play into how he survived being shot by Raven. That could be flashback. That, that could definitely be a that could definitely be a plot point that unfortunately we didn't catch on in the yeah. in that issue. So good good bringing that up. Uh, but now we're going to take a quick promo break and then we'll come back to talk about Green Lantern. Awesome. And I just realized I don't think I actually said we were going to be talking about Green Lantern when I introduced the show. Oh, well. Well, well, well. We're, we're, <laughs> we're both very new at this podcasting. <laughs> yes, this podcasting thing is completely, completely strange and unnatural to me. I've never done it before. I can't understand what's going on. All these buttons and wires. Podcasting, the final frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. The Hammer Podcast is the official podcast of the blog, The Hammer Strikes. Both the blog and the podcast come from the mind of your average late 30s geek. In other words, insane ramblings about science fiction and fantasy minutiae. If that interests you, please visit thehammerstrikes.com. started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. I'm breaking in, shaping up, the checking out. 
All right, and we are back, everyone. So if you didn't know what we're going to be covering, this time out we're going to be covering Green Lantern number one from the Tangent Comics line. This one, like all the other comics out there, was uh, cover dated December of 1997 and released on October 1st of 1997. It had a cover price of $2.95 in the United States and $4.25 in Canada, and the title of the entirety of the book was From Beyond the Unknown. The writer was James Robinson, the penciler was J.H. Williams III, the anchor was Mark Gray, colors and separations were by Lee Lowridge, letterer was David Lamplier, the assistant editor was Frank Berrios, associate editor was Dana Curtin, the editor was Eddie Braganza, and the Tangent Universe was based on concepts by Dan Jurgens. In a darkened mausoleum, an ominous hooded figure carrying a hooked staff, lit only by an eerie green glow coming from the attached lantern, bids us welcome. Revealing herself to be the Green Lantern, she relates that her mystical lantern gives her the power to resurrect the dead from their graves so that they may perform one final mission, allowing them to spend their remaining time in peace. As she talks about a time where she revived two cinema dancers for a dance battle that took a turn into mob violence, her lantern magically draws her away to her next mission. GL arrives at a military cemetery in front of the grave of the hero Captain Comet, who died during the war with Czechoslovakia. And in a flash of emerald energy, the hero arises, and our first story, Comet's Tale, begins. We're treated to the origin story of Captain Comet, who was the victim of a freak meteor accident that implanted a small sliver of the celestial stone into his cerebellum. Rather than dying from the accident, he was he gained fantastical powers and used them to fight crime. Many people in the 1960s were, however, skeptical of a black superhero, but Comet proved his allegiances by serving with America during the Czech War. But during an attempt to divert the course of the Soviet-launched Red Tornado missile, he succumbed to the blast, ending his life. But now, he is returned for revenge. Cut to the mansion of Senator Edward Mason, who is holding an exhibition for his art for the 1% crowd and a few paranormals, the Adam and the Flash, as well. But his entertaining is broken up by the disruptive arrival of Captain Comet, who crashes through a window and abducts the stunned senator. After flying a safe distance away from the party, Comet lands and confronts the senator about his actions dealing with Red Tornado. Comet claims that Mason was a Soviet spy who secretly planted the bomb with the Red Tornado virus at a U.S. military base, and eventually it went off, killing those at the base and Comet as well. Mason admits to his wrongdoing, but says that he didn't know that the bomb was to be used while it was on the base, and that since he returned to America, he's dedicated his life to helping the American people. Unmoved, Comet still demands revenge. Mason tells him to take his life but Comet says that he has something different in mind as he flies off, leaving Mason to walk back to his home. Upon arrival, Mason sees his house ablaze, the firefighters telling him that even the Atom and the Flash couldn't stop Captain Comet from destroying all of Mason's precious art. That's the first story. Since we've got multiple stories in this, why don't we go ahead and we'll rather than read them all at once, we'll just go story by story and give notes for that. Okay. Sound good? 
Um, start with the cover. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with the cover. Again, they're all the sort of white background covers with images of the characters. I like J.H. Williams now, but I will have to admit when I first encountered J.H. Williams, he was just starting out, and it was in an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior. Mm. And it was perhaps one of the most awkward pieces of art that I had seen. His artwork back then was really bad. He... Guy looked bad. He had to draw a rendition of President Bill Clinton that looked awful. Uh, the main bad guy that he was fighting, this one called uh, the Black Serpent, who was a sort of cyber pirate who was hopped up on some sort of drugs. It was really awkward art. And I know people nowadays praise J.H. Williams's art, but it, this 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 is actually a nice transition because I think he's gotten much better and I really like the artwork here. It's it's an interesting cover and the idea of the Green Lantern being a woman who's controlled by a sort of mystical lantern who brings her to different grave sites in order to re- resurrect the dead is kind of a neat one. I like the artwork on the front cover. It's 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 a good cover. Yeah, I really like the design of the character. It's it's elegant and a little mysterious. And it's it's both modern and has has kind of an air of being quite old. Mm-hmm. Um, the I'm not really sure what it's supposed to be like. The flames or the uh, steam trails on her feet and cape are kind of interesting as well. Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a different design element. But you know, I never really took uh, I never really you know tried to determine what that might be. It's just it, it's a neat design element. And again, like with last uh, last issue, the Metalman issue, the character's eyes are are shaded keeping the mystery and not letting you know exactly what this character is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we've seen in the past three. And it'll be a nice change when we get to the next issue, because it's kind of a radical departure from these first three issues, which are very mysterious and very uh, dark and foreboding. When we get to the next issue that we'll talk about on the next episode, it'll be a complete change of pace. And so I'll, I'll be interested to see how the entirety of this series you know, uh, unfolds whether it's going to be very uh, a very dark, mysterious series, or whether it's going to have ups and downs like this. But uh, uh, the cover is really nice. I yeah. really like the they introduce the character well. Uh, so my first note on the framing sequence is actually on page two. Okay, uh, mine is on page one. Uh, I, I kind of said that this story really evokes a Vertigo comics type feel. Um, I also noted that around the borders, if you uh, look throughout the book, around the borders of the different stories, there's specific framing of the borders that uh, leads to each story. Yeah. The Green Lantern ones has a sort of uh, a, like a well, essentially like a, a, a lantern or uh, what would you call it on the outside of your house, uh, a street light. Uh, the the one for the Captain Comet tail has a sort of outer space theme stars and planets and that and the uh, king faraday story has a sort of a tapestry rug pattern so it's 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 neat that that's got this sort of framing around the uh the actual story and the actual artwork down there i thought that was kind of neat and the artwork that jh williams used for each segment is slightly different too mm-hmm. it uh, he it uh, like I said, when I first encountered J.H. Williams, I was really not very impressed with him, but he's really advanced. The The artwork in here is very nice. And yeah, there is a bit of distinguished there, – there's a, 
a bit of difference between each of the stories that allows you to or allows the reader to distinguish it from each other. That's uh, it's really good work for Williams here. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead and on the page two. Uh, my first note was that on this tombstone here in the first panel, they reference an Adrian Chase, who in the DC universe was the 1980s vigilante. Okay. I'm not sure who the character is in this universe, but maybe we'll find out. That's a possibility. I'm certain there's little Easter eggs hidden around, you know, throughout this uh, comic that, yeah. you know, if we spend a little time that. Uh, my note on page two was the idea of the two dancers that uh, the Green Lantern uh, talked about bringing back. In this universe, they were Gene Kiley and Ted Adair. Yeah. Which are obvious analogs to Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. I thought that thought that was kind of amusing. And I like that the Green Lantern powers are distinctly different from the Green Lantern of the regular DC universe. Yes. With with her she's not really able to control it. It the lantern is technically in control and she just is sort of a storyteller. She's the person who narrates it, and that's the lantern who directs her to these places where these supposedly restless souls need uh, resurrection in order to do their final earthly duty. Right. Kind of on a similar note, I mean, the, the book is called Green Lantern, and she is the quote unquote star, but she's not really the feature of the book because the feature is the, the actual, like Captain Comet and the other two characters we're going to be focusing on. But I found it interesting that just in these few panels, they at least tried to give her some personality and some quirks. Um, she talks about how she'd rather be out at a nightclub or at a movie. And, you know, she talks about the Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly thing that went comically wrong. So she's not just, they're not just using her as a cipher to book in the stories. They're actually trying to make a character out of her, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I like the fact that, you know, I got, like I said, earlier it being sort of like a vertigo book i got a sort of feel of the character of death right. from you know death uh, you know yeah, the high cost actually. of living so uh, it it does have that sort of young you know 90s teen party girl well not really party girl but outgoing type person who just happens to be in this guise of a sort of uh, dark superhero. So mm-hmm. it's it's an end, and yes, they do do a great job of at least giving her a little bit of characterization rather than just making her like the crypt keeper, you know, as the storyteller for this. Right. So. Uh, page three, it says that Captain Common is buried at Arlington, which makes sense, but is different from the you know the the other comic book universes we're familiar with, where superheroes are usually recognized separately from non superheroes yeah that you know well i think the fact that he served in the military technically would give him a reason for you know because i don't know how you know superheroes if they would die uh if they would be buried in a, a military cemetery even if they did specifically you know aid the military during times of war i don't know if say uh, members of the JSA, if they served in World War II, you know, technically, would they get uh, the ability to to be buried in a, a military cemetery? So uh, that's that's an interesting an interesting thought. Page four, I really like Captain Comet's costume. It 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 actually reminds me a little bit of the Comet from DC's Impact line in the early '90s. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with those at all? 
I'm vaguely familiar with that. The the ones that were yeah, the impact line with the ray. Well, not with the ray, but the fly. Right, and, the Archie uh, characters basically. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, I I like his his helmet has the kind of feel of a, kind of a Hawkman type feel without the the wings, and I I the the jacket has got that also sort of rocketeer type feel. Yeah. They're all, you know, we and we also commented in the first episode how uh, the original Adams costume had that sort of uh, rocketeer type feel. So it's all got that really nice uh, retro 1960s, 1950s type feel. It's, right. it's a good look. Um, my next note isn't until page five. That's where I'm at too. Okay. Uh, my note was I like that Captain Comet's origin is somewhat similar to the original Captain Comet's origin, which in the original Captain Comet, he got his powers by a comet flying over and was just sort of irradiated, if I kind of remember. Okay. This one, uh, you know, I guess a piece of the comet, you know, fell out of the sky and embedded into his skull, and that's what gave this Captain Comet his powers. I think, I think that's not uh, a completely implausible idea. I, I like the concept. Anything's possible in comic books. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you get stuff embedded in your head. You're going to have superpowers. So, Spider bites, out, whatever. Go yeah. ahead and go out and try it, kids. It's fun. <laughs> uh, we really don't get too much information about his exploits, but I liked that I liked finding out that there were other heroes in the 60s besides the Atom. Mm-hmm. And it's possible, depending on how you want to read the narration, that Comet actually debuted before the atom it could be because yeah well i don't know if you're looking at page five here now this it could be that he debuted before him but on page five that bottom panel as we see him sort of roughing up some thugs in in harlem i've got to assume uh you see uh, a sign for the atomics which are the analog to the in this universe to the beatles so you've got to think that the atomics were you know brought forth because of you know the atom coming out so it, it, they could be around the same time but i think that would be interesting if you know captain comet were if not the first superhero one of the first superheroes i i do like that they don't shy away moving on to page six I, that they don't shy away from the idea of a black superhero in the 1960s right being kind of mistrusted in the u.s Dr. Martin Luther King was marching at the time, trying to get civil rights uh, brought to the forefront. A lot of people in Alabama, the the idea of segregation or uh, integration of blacks in the schools right. was a big problem. So there was there was just a lot of mistrust, and to have a black superhero in this universe is really cool. And I think this is another thing that we talked about in earlier issues, that this is something that if they eventually wanted to come back and tell stories about this, they could easily go and use this as fodder for more stories to, you know, tell the kind of stuff that he had to deal with the prejudices and uh, the sort of, uh, dealings with people who might be kind of racist. And it'd be an interesting way that, you know, they could mine this for stories. Definitely. Definitely agree. Um, Again, pages six and seven, we got a reference to this attack on the U.S. base and, and Captain Comet's death in the Metal Man issue from last episode. It was just referenced for context about how badly the war was going when the Metal Men were sent in. And I just love how all of these things are dovetailing together without being required reading. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, again, they 
through the artwork, they make it very horrific. I know we talked about in the Metal Man issue the uh, image of the girl with her dog right. and uh, how how kind of tragic and horrific it is. There's on page seven here the image of Captain Comet fighting off the the red tornado rocket and him getting obliterated by it. You see his body basically disintegrating, and it's it's pretty horrific without being graphic. Um, graphic. Yes, right. very good. They they do a good job of of setting up the the terror of all of this, mm-hmm. and and a lot of that's it's as much in the art as it is the writing. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a combined effort between the two of them. Oh yes. Uh, but speaking of art, moving on over to page nine, just what a great page this is with both the art and the coloring. I, I especially like the way Williams used the the circular design on the window. And then continued that into the other panels and even onto the next few pages as this entire scene is playing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I didn't really think about that, but yeah, the Captain Comet crashing through the circular window and then the panels basically being framed as circular panels. It's it's really good, and Comet takes out both the Atom and the Flash pretty handily here. And you, you've got to wonder, why is he going after this senator? Is this senator corrupt? Yeah. You know, what's, what's the reason behind it? And uh, everyone else is kind of floored as well because we, we basically see this person as just kind of a like a Ted Kennedy type person. You know, well, maybe that's not the best example, but, you know, just to... <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into the politics of it, but you know, but uh, just a, a kind senator is having you know members of his constituency over to to display some of his art. So you've got to wonder why Captain Comet, who everyone thinks is or who everyone knows is dead, is here doing this. Right. So it's, it's an interesting framing sequence. The art and the story sell it really well. And maybe it goes without saying, but this is also the first time we've seen the Atom. Since his issue, and the first time we've really gotten a good look at the Flash, you know, and we're seeing them out interacting with the public and, and being heroes rather than just getting their origin stories, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, we we don't really see too much of them, you know, engaging in any, you know, fisticuffs or fighting or anything, or, or as I like to say from uh, Professor Allen's view, any any consequences going on, right? But. Uh, we we do at least get to see them as an active part of this universe that and that not only are they you know heroes in in their own right but they're also sort of members of the elite as you would think you know a superhero would be uh, you know you've got someone who's got supernatural powers the technically the one percenters will would like to align themselves with them in any way that they could right oh very much so yeah um, moving on to page twelve. Mm-hmm. Okay, just an art question. Where is this huge spotlight coming from in the fourth panel? <laughs> um, aliens? I don't <laughs> know. You know, I, I've got to assume that uh, it's... I mean, it's dramatic that, lighting. I get we, it. We've got, we've, in that first panel up there, we've got the, the full moon. So you right. could maybe assume it's the light of the moon, but that's a pretty... Right. I will agree. I didn't really take that in consideration. They are quite well lit. There's a lot of shadowing yeah. on these characters for being out and I, you know, maybe there's just a random street lamp somewhere that's off screen. Giant mountain. Could be. Yeah. But <laughs> they they can put them up there, I guess. Maybe in this universe. In the tangent universe, everything is very well lit. <laughs> um, um let's see, I I, I talked about uh 
uh, on these pages, I talked about my notes about uh, earlier about I like the design of his costume and I like the helmet looking somewhat like Hawkman's. The one thing I will say that I kind of dislike about J.H. Williams' uh, art is that he draws really weird teeth. I don't know if you if you look into some of these issues, most of his people when they're smiling or have their mouth open, it looks like their upper teeth, they only have three teeth up there. And it gives it a kind of weird buck tooth look for yeah. a lot of the characters. But that's just a minor niggling point. Uh, otherwise, the artwork is really good. Uh, the facial designs are good. It's just those those teeth just kind of pop out at me and just kind of creep me out. Um, and I, I, I have a... My, my previous comment about the spotlight was kind of a nitpick, but this is a more serious question, and, and it actually carries on over to page 13. And how does Captain Comet know all of this? I mean, in, in the other two stories, which I, I'm going to, you know, I don't want to spoil ahead, but the resurrected, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that their missions have them acting on information that they knew before they died. But there's no way that Captain Comet could have known Mason was a spy that was carrying a bomb or that he. Or that after the war ended, he slipped away to America and became a politician. I mean, maybe this knowledge comes with the death or in the resurrection, but it's just an oddity compared to the other two. Yeah, that that would be the only thing that I could say that there might be something supernatural about this. That the fact that he is come back from the dead, and there is some sort of I don't know, some sort of zeitgeist or some sort of uh, spiritual knowledge that you mm-hmm. gain of, you know, collective consciousness or whatever you'd like to put into it, that when you are dead, that you are able to understand this type of stuff. It, it, it I agree. It does work better in the other two stories because those people do have definite knowledge of what was going on while Comet shouldn't know that uh, Senator Mason is a spy here. So it does kind of, it does kind of beg credulity, but if you just – it's one of the things I think if you have to no-prize it, you'd have to say, well, they're dead. They're yeah. one with the universe. They know all these things, and that's the reason they've come back. So. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that we are introduced to yet another person involved in some very, very bad things during the war who's now in a position of great power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of seems that way in this universe. You know, you 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 do sort of underhanded things and you get elected to high office. So, hmm, maybe the tangent universe is a place you want to want to work in uh, politics. Hmm. <laughs> um, page fourteen. I just want to say again that I really, really love Captain Comet's costume. Mm-hmm. I love the the sort of orange fiery. Uh, aura that he has around him when oh, he's yeah. getting ready to fly. That's a really nice thing. And it, it also evokes the sort of idea of Green Lantern, the, the Green Lantern from our universe, where whenever he powers up and gets ready to fly, he gets that aura around him. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, As much as I think both of us love the first Adams costume, I think this is my favorite character design so far. Yeah, it's a really nice design. It's, it's very classic. It's very sleek. And it's, uh, you know, I just kind of noticed it the the pants you know they're kind of guy gardner pants you know they're the black pants with the white stripe down the side so uh, aside from the knee pads but you know if you had giant moon boots on that'd be even better (laughs) i i like the way that the story ends you know the revenge that captain comet did wasn't 
taking away his life or his family. It was taking away that something he loved. And I don't know if this is actually retribution, but it's, it is one of those sort of anthology twilight zone type endings that uh, we don't really get in comics anymore. And, you know, I, I like, I like the sort of callback to the, like I said, the anthology comics, like House of Mystery and House of Secrets, where we get these little short stories about these interesting characters that tell these sort of Rod Serling type tales. So as an ending thematically as a story, it may not be the best retribution, but as an ending is taken as a sort of Twilight Zone or House of Mystery type tale, it works. Mm -hmm. And at the end, Ed Mason's house burns. Which was referenced last episode. Oh, yeah. At the very, very end of the issue, the president mentions it to his wife. Not to not sound like a broken record, but again, I just love the non-obtrusive I connections. Com- I completely forgot about that, but I'm going to have to uh, – now I'm going to have to be watching a lot more diligently <laughs> to make sure that I catch these little things because uh, – <laughs> Eventually, we're going to have to see if we can seek out Dan Jurgens, talk to him about yes. this because this is this is very cleverly written and very the the cohesiveness of this is is just becoming more and more. I'm becoming more and more impressed with it. Yeah. So you ready to move on to the second? I am ready to do that. Uh, we'll go ahead and finish up as Captain Comet returns to his grave. The Green Lantern transports to a cemetery in upstate New York a resting place for the elite. Here, she brings back to life King Faraday for A Tale of the Unexpected. Sitting in his office as editor-in-chief of House of Mystery Crime Publications, Roy Raymond is shocked to see his long-thought-dead friend, King Faraday, enter the room. Raymond asks if Faraday faked his death to throw off the trail of the Moldavian killers that were trailing him, and Faraday says that his death wasn't fake. He truly died and is back from the beyond. You see, while flying with one of Captain Boomerang's stunt pilots, a young Arthur Curry, the plane had engine trouble and the two were forced to eject. Unfortunately, as Faraday was rather... hefty man, the rapid expulsion from the plane snapped his neck, killing him instantly. Raymond then asks why he's returned from the dead to seek him out, and Faraday says that it has to do with the death of billionaire Ralph Digby. Raymond remembers the murder. Digby was found dead in a car park, a bullet put cleanly through his eyes. Faraday says that while investigating the murder, he found that there were many people who wanted him dead, including one Alfred Pennyworth. But after interviewing him, Faraday discounted him as a, sub- as a suspect, but upon investigation of his records, he was led to another possible suspect. It seems that Digby wanted to shut down most of Pennyworth's magazine businesses and sell off the rest for profit. But upon his death, the stock prices for the magazines plummeted. One of the magazines was House of Mystery, the magazine that Raymond bought and now was publishing himself, and the one that Faraday claims that Raymond murdered Digby for. Raymond balks at the accusation, but Faraday says that the killing shot was too perfect and came after Raymond initially missed due to his eyesight being off because of the loss of his right eye. Dejected, Raymond admits his guilt and wonders what Faraday plans to do. The resurrected detective said that he was only here to deliver the report of his final mystery. And now he can finally rest. But before he leaves, he and Raymond share a toast. To mystery. May it always need solving. 
awesome. This is this is a really good again, I hearken back to the sort of Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt type yeah. anthology feel. This is just one of those little stories where you get something supernatural happen and it doesn't really have a, a resolution that you would expect. There's no there's no specific consequences. It's just, you know, I came back from the dead to tell you about this. It's a really great tale and it's something that you wouldn't see. You would you would expect something like he would come back to avenge his murder and bring justice to it. But no, it's it's just a quiet little tale re- recounting a story and it's it's glorious. I love this one. It it takes what you're expecting and kind of turns it on its head. Mm-hmm. It's like tale of the unexpected, I guess that. Makes exactly. Sense now. I also like that there were no superheroes. These are all very human characters. It's not at all related to the war in Czechoslovakia. It's just very different than anything else we've seen or are likely to see. Mm-hmm. It's 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 its own little contained story, and it's right. it's a great little homage to a lot of the stuff that I'm assuming. I haven't read much House of Mystery. I think I read a few back when I was over at. Uh, you know my grandparents' house, and with my cousin who had a lot of comics, I may have read a few of them, but I was more interested, of course, in the superhero titles. Mm-hmm. So I I didn't really have a knowledge of House of Mystery, but I do love you know the Twilight Zone and Outer Limits shows like that, and this definitely evokes the sort of feel of those kind of uh, television shows. Definitely, I've got the first showcase volume of the House of Mystery, and and I really enjoy it. It's not something I can just sit and read for several, you know, for a long period of time because I am more of a superhero guy, so I like to mix it up. But this this uh, story would fit very well in that kind of genre of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I really didn't have any specific notes on this. Oh, really? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I like the story. I love the characters. Um, Roy Raymond, I guess, was a character who initially appeared, I think, in Detective Comics. And he was uh, sort of a Ripley's Believe It or Not host who would investigate strange claims and determine if they were true. And King Faraday was essentially a spy character, and they were both created around the same time. I want to say uh, very early Silver Age, yeah, like uh, so. 1958, 57. Um, I did like them making Faraday a sort of sala like a Muslim character yeah, because the way we sort of see him now is a very uh, James Bond type uh, spy character. I, I, I like that bit. And I thought, uh, uh, I thought it was kind of a, a nice take to have just a, a Muslim character in here because we're, we're, we're taking things and turning on their head. And I like that they're using different ethnicities because a lot of times the DC universe will be sort of claimed as being, kind of a white, uh, you know, a kind of white guy's club. And I like that they're putting a, a multitude of ethnicities in here and and not making it a big deal, just making it part of the universe. Right. Yeah, so many times the the different ethnicities or religions or, or even sexual orientations become all that character is instead mm-hmm. of just being part of the character. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing that I like in my comics. I would rather if a character has a, a difference that it come out of 
that it not be the major focal point of their character. Right. Uh, one of the things that's kind of irked me about the the new Green Lantern, the Simon Baz character in the New Fifty Two, was that he was kind of put in specifically because he was a Muslim character. It wasn't developed as he was uh, a character who was Green Lantern who just happened to be Muslim as well. So, uh, but that's that's getting off topic, and I don't want to court any more controversy about that. So. Do you, uh, like I said, I didn't have any really specific notes. I loved the story, but I'm willing to go along with anything that you've got to talk about on it. Um, well, looking over my notes, I don't guess I have like specific page-by-page notes. They're more kind of broad-stroke comments. Mm-hmm. Um, but this segment has a very noir feel. And oh, yes. These, these opening pages, 18 and 19, really set up the physical scene very well. It's just so well illustrated that this is an old building – you know, you can feel that it's hot and it's dirty. There are cracks in the wall and the the molding on the wall on the, around the doorways. The you can just feel that the air is stiff and musty and it smells of cigarette smoke and old paint and mold. Raymond looks like he could have just walked right out of a, a dirty noir detective film. I, I just I love it. It's so different from the previous story and then the next one we'll look at in mm-hmm. art style. Yeah, it, I think you nailed it there with a sort of noir feel. It's got that sort of Raymond Chandler, uh, Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Casablanca type feel. It's it's just one fun. I love that they're both smoking in here, especially with uh, Faraday smoking not only a cigar, but he's smoking the cigar on the sort of stem, mm-hmm. that, that very uh, elegant type looking thing. It's just wonderful. And uh, the flashback moments as well, them being painted in uh, or being colored in a sort of red hue gives it a nice uh, contrast to it. And uh, it's just exceptional art here by J.H. Williams and the coloring as well. Yeah, the the coloring was actually my next note. And that throughout the entire book, it's beautiful. And the, the palette that Lee Loth how you pronounce that? Lee Luffridge, maybe? I I, I did Low Ridge, but Low Ridge, that'll yeah. work. We'll say that. Um, that he used on each story is different, and each matching the tone of that particular uh, tale. And like you said, the, the flashbacks in this segment, I really like how he colored those, keeping the noir feel, but making them very much stand out from the rest of the story, which is presumably set in the present. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just really... Uh, all around a, a great bunch of art uh, and and giving the sort of a red tint to it does give that sort of the the red evokes a sort of feel of blood and mm-hmm. murder and you know that's kind of what he's dealing with he's dealing with a, a mystery that's uh, centered around a murder of someone so it's a really really good art choice here setting up here yeah and uh, page 21 where the where you see the body shot in the mm-hmm. head that's interesting how they colored that too with the blood as being white because the rest of the palette is red and black. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nice way to distinguish it and contrast it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it probably also could, you know, I'm not certain if they're dealing with comics code here, but if they had to get around the comics code and showing blood, which I'm certain at this point in time was pretty. None of these books pretty have lax. a seal on them. So you know they they could have you know which might also uh, go into how they have that sort of vertigo type feel that you know they're a bit more adult than the regular right. uh, DC comics feel but uh, yeah it's it's a great aesthetic design it's a great choice uh, for the color palette that really distinguishes it from the other books around here yeah 
And the the last thing I had, I guess we kind of already really touched on it, but the this story as well as the previous one both ended kind of opposite of how you might expect them to end because in the last one Manson was a spy but he he wasn't necessarily guilty of what happened but still paid the price and here Raymond is very much guilty but ends up just having a drink with Faraday because Faraday's mission wasn't to punish just to reveal the mystery. Mhm. Yeah, it's it's great and it's it's that sort of weird twist ending that you'd get in in the best of your Twilight Zone episodes that just really sells this as a, as a really good story. Yeah. And also that I don't really envy you having to do the synopsis for this one because these were all, you know, they're, they're shorter, but they're all very dense. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like doing three full synopses in uh, it's, one issue. It, it, it's not bad because they're actually – they're actually really fun reads. Yeah, these uh, these books are a bit longer. I think together they're thirty four pages, mm-hmm. maybe thirty eight. But uh, they're all such good stories, and I, I don't think we've really commented on James Robinson as the writer. You know, we talked a lot about J.H. Williams and uh, Lee Lowridge being the artist, but you know, uh, Robinson does a great job telling these stories, and not only you know. Uh, telling interesting stories but all three of these stories sort of relate to each other as well right while also uh filling into the entire tapestry of the tangent universe so it's uh, a standing well on their own true so you can take them all on their own you can encompass them into this one comic where they each relate to each other in some way and you can also expand them out to the entirety of the tangent universe at least so far what i'm seeing so i that's that's a credit to especially to Robinson to be able to pull that uh, pull that off in the story. Definitely. Uh, but if you're ready, we'll go ahead and work into the uh, next storyline. Sure. All right. Uh, the Green Lantern wonders if Roy Raymond will ever publish the tale or if he'll just bury it, much like the body of King Faraday is again. And with that, Green Lantern is whisked away to her home for a spot of jasmine tea before bed. Raising three people from the dead is busy work, she relates, and now she's ready to tell tell her third and final tale, entitled Return to Sender. On the private airfield of Captain Boomerang, young Arthur Curry, the newest member of the Captain's Flyers, is giving an interview to a female reporter for World's Finest magazine. The interviewer asks what Curry thinks about the Captain, and the young pilot relates the tale of Adam Clay, a young man whose parents were murdered by the Japanese forces during World War II. Adam was able to escape the f- escape in the family's old crop duster and later allied himself with a group of disenfranchised flyers who also suffered losses from the Axis powers. Being Australian, Clay took the name of Captain Boomerang and fought alongside the Allies and other groups for the cause of freedom. He was also able to stay young due to genetic surgery. The reporter then asked how Curry became to be a member of the team and Arthur tales of an aerial attack by the Dark Stars on an exhibition of Boomerang's planes. Curry hopped into one of the hangared planes and shot down a Dark Star that was headed towards the crowd. Boomerang was so impressed that he invited him to join, and even when Curry suffered the death of a passenger during an ejection emergency, he was allowed to stay on. The reporter then asks how Arthur's family feels about this, and he says that he doesn't have much of a family. His mother died in the red tornado explosion shortly after giving birth to him, and he doesn't know who his father is. And with that, the reporter hands Arthur a photograph of Adam Clay with his mother. You see, Michelle Curry and Adam Clay had been lovers, 
but Michelle wanted her independence. But after the birth of her son, she changed her mind and wrote to Boomerang that she wanted to marry him. But the letter was never sent because of her death on the Pilsen Air Force Base. Shocked by the news uh, that he is the son of Captain Boomerang, Arthur runs off to show the letter and picture to his newfound father. And as the young man speeds away, the interviewer removes her wig and glasses, revealing herself as Michelle Curry, Arthur's mom, and Adam's love. She didn't go to see Clay again because he would have seen through the disguise, and she didn't want him to have to lose her again. But she knows he will find joy in discovering that he has a son, and hopefully one day they will meet again and share their love for an eternity. Wow, you know, that's uh, again credit to James Robinson for writing a really fun, engaging story, but ending it in you know a sort of touching, dramatic way. I, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times you won't get this sort of poignancy with uh, with stories dealing with death. You know, it, uh, it's difficult to build emotion in such a short amount of space, too. Mm-hmm. And and, and the. Robinson does just a great job of doing it, and I, I really, I really enjoyed this. I, I did a lot of plagiarizing in my synopsis, but Robinson did just a great job at writing this last story, and it, it's a, it's a really touching story that again harkens back to some of the best Twilight Zone episodes out there. And I keep coming back to that because Twilight Zone is such a wonderful show, but this it, this evokes that kind of feel. I really really enjoyed this last story yeah um page 26 this is a really nicely illustrated page i think with i i really like the way they use the tree to kind of split up the uh the page and make it appear to be more than one panel it just gives it a real feeling of motion and an overall nice page design mm-hmm. yeah the Basically, here's one of the things that I know they talked about in the back matter that I never really got from the look of the character of Green Lantern. They said that she's supposed to be Asian. Now, again, I don't see, you know, she's covered with a, with a mask, so her facial features aren't that specifically seen. And her dress, I guess you could say, might have uh, aspects of... Uh, Asian feel, mm-hmm. but I never really got that she was Asian. I think, yeah, I, I, never... think that's, I think that's a nice credit to Jay Williams as an artist that he doesn't stereotype her in a way. Uh, but if you want to take that uh, kind of feel that she might be Asian in some way, uh, you can. But I, I like the fact that they didn't specifically, you know, pigeonhole her into a, a, a specific stereotype or a specific uh, ethnicity. Yeah. I, I saw the characters as just a blend of many different things, both culturally and ethnically. I mean, if it actually goes into my next note for page 27, is we see her 
um, her house or her living space, and you see all these different religious symbols. There's a Star of David on the wall, uh, something that looks like a Buddha, the Eye of Horus, a crucifix, and other statues and symbols. So, Yeah, you also see back in the corner, uh, it looks like it might be a, a statue of Mary. I'm not mm-hmm. really certain. But there's, there, it's, it's nice that they're giving her this sort of uh, – they're not pinning her down to any one religion. They're saying right. that she encompasses all of this, and that's that's a nice concept. You know, this person who's dealing with death realizes that things from all religions, you know, encompass the idea of what goes on with the afterlife. And you know, maybe it's saying that you know, not every or not one specific religion is completely right. Maybe there are things from every religion that has some validity to it. So that's that's an interesting concept that they take for this. Definitely. Um I I love the change of artwork. It gets uh on page twenty eight, the artwork gets a nice um a much brighter feel yeah. simply because this uh, is set and the line work is a lot cleaner. This is a lot, the, the characters look a lot more crisp. I think there's a lot thinner inking here on the, on the previous ones. It was to give it that sort of noir feel. The inks were a bit thicker and I think the colors were a lot darker, yeah. but I, I think the coloring here uh, definitely helps make this a more upbeat type tale. Yeah. It's very um, open and airy, and, and it really gives you a sense of the big open air field. And you mm-hmm. know, again, the coloring is just beautiful with the sunset sky, and you know, mm-hmm. like it's just very, very clean and very airy. Yep, I, I love the design of Captain Boomerang's planes. You know, the sort of beaming yeah. planes. Now, I don't know how uh, practical they would be, but. Eh. Who cares? It's a comic it's a book. Comic they book. look yeah. cool. I'm sorry, you know the the boomerang. And they've got uh, back in the back matter some different designs of the boomerang and planes as well. But yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. And while we're talking about the back matter, just as a heads up for the listeners, I have been scanning the back matter from each issue and posting it in the show notes. So if you're interested in learning more about, because the back matter talks about sort of how the characters developed and it has some concept sketches and such from the artists of each book. So if you're interested in learning more about that, be sure to check out the website at greatcrypton.com. Oh, definitely. It was I, I actually checked that out while I was on vacation and uh, took a look at that, and uh, I was glad to see that up there. And uh, I'm glad you post that stuff because that that definitely adds to the uh, adds to the show and gives yeah. you a little bit more. Of and it's it's usually interesting information, but just doesn't provide a lot of stuff to talk about on the show. You know. No. Yeah. It's 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 dialogue. You know. Yeah. It's It's something that you know if you read and get something from it. It's good, but yeah, it does. It's not necessarily something that you know we are necessarily need to talk about, right? Um, page twenty nine. Uh, the guy is introduced as Arthur Curry, and uh, that's definitely not Aquaman. Although his origin is is kind of similar to the Golden Age Aquaman. His mother died while Arthur was a boy. His father was a skilled pilot, and. Uh, that's kind of a parallel with uh, Aquaman's uh, father being a skilled underwater explorer. So there's some parallels there if you want to if you want to take that. I, I also drew some parallels to Batman's origin with both his mm-hmm. parents being killed and makes sense as well. Yeah. Um, I don't have any. Uh, my next notes on page thirty-one. Do you uh, have any? Well, yeah, on this page we <laughs> we have Teen Titans being reimagined as a as a magazine for like. As a, a teen-centric magazine like Tiger Beat or something. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's 
uh, page 30, like I said, Captain Boomerang's origin is a lot like Batman with his parents being killed and him, you know, resolving to uh, make something out of his life. And also, when he's telling the story, and I'm glad that you brought up, or that we had the discussion earlier about Captain Comet being black, because it kind of ties into this a little bit, but when he's telling the story, he says, the Japs were were marching on Burma. And when I was on your show, uh, just one of the guys a few months ago, we talked about racial terms and, and such within the context of a story. And I think today, the term Jap is pretty much across the board considered a derogatory term. Oh, definitely. So I just found it interesting that it was used here, and I wonder if it's a sign of um, a, a wider prevailing racial attitude in this universe or something else. I mean, it. See, the thing is, uh, in stories like this that are set, because this is obviously set in World War II, and unfortunately, at the time in World War II, this is how we referred to the Japanese people because right. we wanted to denigrate them because they were our enemies. So we use this negative stereotype against them. And I'm wondering if this is just the same sort of thing. This is him recounting the way people reacted to those characters at that time, reacted to those those people. Um, I don't know if it's something that's carried on. If, if uh, President Schwartz was uh, referring to Japanese people as Japs, I think that that might be a bit more telling that it was something that carried on. But I think this is just a piece of history and that's how they related to them at the time. Mm. Okay. Then on the next page we see a shot of Boomerang's original team, presumably uh, the original team from the late 1940s and they're I found it interesting interesting that they were all clearly of five different ethnicities and races. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. I, again, it's oh, yeah. that it's it's that inclusiveness that there were that we don't really care about specific racial uh, types. We're, we're not discriminatory in any way. That these people, these heroes, uh, accept people because they are good people they're not distrusting of people because of their ethnicity or their race or anything like that so i like that and i like and i also wanted to kind of point out that uh the use of the sort of circular uh panels here that kind of relates Mm -hmm. back to what we saw earlier with uh the captain comet story right so it's, it's it's a nice framing sequence in here and we have i have no idea what they're fighting in that last panel but it looks like a giant nazi robot zombie Mm-hmm. which is awesome. I agree. That's one of my notes I had on this panel that the that the Captain Boomerang squad was fighting giant Nazi robots. I don't care your your argument is moot at this point. This is awesome. Take my money, please. <laughs> um let's see page 32. Uh we see here uh Raven and Schwartz from the uh, Metal Man issue uh, as uh, Captain Boomerang's planes are flying over. Plus, we also get a very creepy Dr. Mengele character that relates to um, Captain Boomerang being able to keep himself young due to this uh, genetic surgery. Yep. Plus, the uh, Mengele creepy character has a Nightwing symbol on his... uh, around his, uh, I guess, on his uniform. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a little Nightwing sort of emblem around his neck. Uh, I'm certain this will probably lead into uh, a grander tale once we get to some of the Nightwing stuff. So I, I'm kind of interested to see who this character is. But <laughs> that scalpel he's carrying that he's holding, 
That is a creepy scalpel. That's a very creepy scalpel. You know, it's the blade is serrated and not just, you know, mildly serrated, but it's got like hooks in it. Uh. It's like a fish hook. Yes, it is. Fish, uh, and, fish and, the, and, and the fact that this quote unquote surgeon's hands are just and chest is pretty much mm. sprayed with blood. Yeah, that's a that's an eerie, eerie. But you're right. He is he is sporting a Nightwing symbol, which means that Boomerang's genetic genetic surgery was probably done for a lot darker reasons than we're told. So I, I hope we learn more about that later. Oh, definitely. Um, like I said uh, earlier in the in, in the synopsis, I, I enjoy the fact that all three stories sort of tie in each other. As here, we're told how. Uh, Arthur Curry had Faraday eject from his cockpit and die, as well as uh, how Curry's mom died in the Red Tornado explosion, where Captain Comet was trying to prevent that. So I, I again, I like the fact that they have stories can be taken individually on their own. They can be taken as a part of this whole comic, and they can also be taken a part of this whole tapestry mm-hmm. of the Tangent Universe. Very much agree. Pages thirty-four and thirty-five. Unfortunately, I kind of guessed this twist from the beginning, so I kind of zoned out at this point. It's probably why the meat of the story about Captain Boomerang's history was more interesting to me than Arthur's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a very stereotypical twist ending. Like, you know, you know someone is coming back from the grave uh, because that's what we've seen in the previous two stories. So you're wondering who's who this is. Right. And it, it, yeah, they, it's not a surprise. They made a point, uh, Green Lantern, in the uh, the bookend between the story and the last one, she made a point of that she wasn't going to tell us who the resurrected was because it would spoil the story. But we've only had two characters here, so it had to be, and it was pretty clear who it was, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it didn't ruin the story, but it it wasn't no. it wasn't a shock, right? It wasn't as 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 shocking an ending as it was with the Captain Comet and the King Faraday one, but right. it was a satisfying ending nonetheless. Do you know that the mother came back to essentially reunite her father and son? So mm-hmm. it it was it was a touching ending. Uh, but page thirty six, it seems a little dubious to me that he wouldn't recognize his own mother with just a wig and a pair of glasses. But as I've said before, I think on other shows. I'm a fan of Superman, so <laughs> weak disguises is not a glass house where I should really be throwing stones. Well, and I think this was also uh, – it was also commented that it wasn't Curry that necessarily would have seen through the disguise. It would have been Captain Boomerang who would have easily seen through the disguise. So she didn't go to Boomerang specifically right. to tell him that you know, uh, he was – you know that, that Curry was his son. But uh, she went to her son, who probably wouldn't recognize his mother because he was just a boy when she passed away. So it, it makes a little sense there, I guess. Okay. But uh, I really, I really don't have uh, that many notes until the end. It's, it's, it's a nice ending. It's a good story, and it's a good uh, trio of stories. I yes. really enjoyed this issue. Yes, and as we said before, there's no strict order that these comics have to be read in, but I love that we've had two very dense, very world-building issues with the Metal Men and the Atom, and then it was followed by this, which is a more uh, laid-back, and and while it did fill in some details, you know, it was more just a good read than the mythology-building 
issues. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of mythology building, but that that wasn't the that wasn't the driving point of the story. Right. The the point of this book was to tell three really good stories that just happened to take place in this universe. And uh, again, Williams and Robinson did a great job at doing that in this book. Definitely. But that's all I had about it. Same here. I I'm looking forward to more of this, and in fact, I'm looking forward to the next issue. Uh, it's going to be uh, quite a change up, uh, if I'm thinking right. Yeah, it's uh. Well, we might as well go ahead and tell them what we're going to be talking about. Next mm-hmm. episode, we're going to be talking about The Flash mm-hmm. by Todd DeZago and Gary Frank. And it's it's definitely very different than anything we've looked at so far. Oh, yes. Uh, it's uh, For good or for bad. It's it's not it's not very dark. Let's just uh, no. give it that. But, yeah, that, that does it uh, for this time out. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to the uh, DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, Parallel Lines. And we hope to see you the next time we release this show. finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, hosted by me, Michael Bradley, and me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places, most notably Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It can also be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review maybe even a five-star one. All reviews help more people to find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about these books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Well, then you can email us at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your emails on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. Plus, he hosts a blog about the Man of Steel's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, called Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, both of which you can find over at GreekCrypton.com. And Sean hosts a Green Lantern podcast focusing on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, called Just One of the Guys. He's also a guest host on Walking Dead Wednesdays, a Walking Dead podcast, and Who True Freaks, a Doctor Who podcast. And all these shows can be found over at twotruefreaks.com. Speaking of Two True Freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the link at twotruefreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. (laughs) 